Hello, how's it? Welcome to another installment of the Liberty and Friends podcast. I'm your host, Big Daddy Liberty. And of course, this show is brought to you by the Big Liberty Show in conjunction with the Institute of Race Relations. Guys, welcome back to the show. I hope you enjoyed this, the topic last week. We had, uh, if you remember, Mr. Nicholas Babaya, who is a uh, writer and analyst at the IRR. He's just recently joined us. And uh, he is, you know, when you want to talk all things China, Nick is your man. So go ahead and listen to that podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, this week, I have a cracker of a guest for you guys. But before I get to my guest, let me have my usual five-minute rant. And I'll make it a short one because I've got someone who can rant just as well as I can in studio. Guys, some of the big news items that you've probably been checking out um, and that you know I'm excited about if you've been watching my other shows is the deal of the century, Mr. Trump's approach towards the Middle East peace plan. Now, you guys know I've been talking about this for a very long time and I echo some of the sentiments of key thinkers on this issue who've basically said, if you don't understand what one side of that debate, if you will, wants to do to the other side, namely the Palestinian, the so-called Palestinian cause, which a lot of people sort of mask in the language of victimhood. Oh, the poor Palestinians. If only, you know, excuse me, if only the evil Israelis got out of the way, the Palestinians would do so well. That's just simply not true. If you do not have a government that follows the rule of law, that appreciates civil liberties, that creates an environment that allows individuals in that society, wherever you are in the world, to thrive, then you will not have the sort of prosperity, the sort of peace that is required uh, to build societies. Now, what do I mean by this? Have a look at the rest of the Arab world. The rest of the Arab world has essentially done exactly what I'm suggesting to varying degrees. I'm not saying they're free societies, not all of them at least, but they've erred on the side of um, more progressive freedoms for individuals. I mean, look at Saudi Arabia. If we were having this conversation 20 years ago, no one would have believed that um, a new leader would have ushered in some reforms that we're beginning to see come through there that are improving their society. That's the first argument. The second argument is, economically, the rest of the Arab world is doing really well. Um, You know, a lot of these countries obviously have the God-given endowment of oil, but they haven't stopped there. They've used the oil to build up uh, savings, At an individual level, there's been a wonderful distribution of income, not a redistribution, a distribution of income. In other words, people have found work, um, they've invested their income in providing good education, good health care, the very things that individuals need to be able to become competitive, to enter the economy. And what have they done with that? They have societies now that have largely middle-income individuals. And you've seen a commensurate rise in the living standards in the past part of the world. Now, look at it. If you're an Arab nation, as I've just described now, where there's a high level of um, a high standard of living, um, you're very connected to the rest of the world. I mean, some of these places are literally travel hubs, international travel hubs. Now, if you're living in a society like that, and then you look at what's happening in uh, so-called Palestine, and the people there are still holding on to the rhetoric, the Arab rhetoric of the 60s, of being victims, of not uh, being able to progress and, and, and prosper. You're thinking, why though? If the rest of us are doing so well, why? And a lot of you are thinking, oh, of course you'll say that, Sikhle, you're a Zionist. Um, of course you'll look at it through rose-tinted eyes, but look at the record. When this deal by Donald Trump came out, some of the loudest voices in support of it were Arab countries, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Oman. They came out and said, yes, this is the beginning 
of the sort of peace plan that we want for this region. It talks about prosperity by offering 50 billion rands worth of investment to the Palestinians. Now, this is not donations. This is not, um, <coughs> excuse me, guys, I want a frog in my throat. This is not donations. This is not aid. It's actual investment into infrastructure, into creating jobs, industry, the very sort of things that you need as a society. Um, again, moving away from viewing Palestinians as victims and actually basically saying, if you guys can get your act together in the next four years, abandon the terrorist likes of Hamas, abandon the, um, the violence and come to the table this 50 billion rand, in and amongst other things, is waiting for you. An actual nation, finally the Palestinians can have a nation for themselves, is actually waiting for you. And it is you, the ordinary Palestinian, who will get to decide your leadership, not terrorist organizations like Hamas or Islamic Jihad. You, the ordinary citizen, why would you not want that? Why would that not be something you envision as being absolutely necessary for the home, the establishment of a home, sorry, of the Palestinian people who live co in co in, um, uh, excuse me, who live side by side with the Israelis. That is the two-state solution that we've been talking about forever. Now, if you're someone who doesn't want peace in that part of the world, who wants to see the war, who wants to see the rockets, who want to see uh, Israelis, uh, you know, with high walls and the like, then yeah, you you know you you won't want any peace. Um, excuse me, you won't want any deal. You'll talk about Trump being uh, totally useless and not doing anything to help in that region. But think about, I'll leave you with this. I'll leave you with this. Stop believing what the media tell you about this deal. You cannot tell me a president who everybody maligns, who everybody um, treats as an absolute joke. You can't tell me that a guy, that same guy, comes with a deal and is able to convince Arab countries who just 40 years ago were fighting a war against that country, ready to annihilate it, ready to actually get rid of the Jewish state. You can't tell me that a guy who's brought those countries to be able to say, yeah, we accept this deal, we want it, it'll bring peace to the region. You can't tell me that guy doesn't know what he's doing. Now, I'm not praising Trump in all other things. I think he's a statist, he's blown the deficit in America, spending is, is still just as out of control, in my view, as any other president. Um, you know, there's good and a bad to everybody, as I always say. Like, love is tax cuts, but spending is still out of control. Um, but on this particular foreign policy issue, he has my full support um, in, in actually bringing peace to that part of the world and bringing something different. So that's my rant, my five-minute rant. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, I didn't um, <laughs> because there's still not, no peace in that part of the world. And I don't think for as much as this deal is, is as good as I suggested it, um, that the Palestinian leadership will actually come to the table. So it's really the ball's in the hands um, of the Palestinian people themselves. They need to be the ones who insist on good governance and abandonment of terrorism, the abandonment of corruption, the eradication of the poverty that they live in. I mean, it's unacceptable in the 21st century that those people surrounded by prosperity are still living like that. And it really is up to them. So I hope they take it up. Kudos to the Americans. And I will keep you guys updated on this issue as and when it pops up. But back to my guest, back to my guest. Um, as soon as I come back from this break, I'm going to be having a conversation with Mr. Darby Ruet, who, of course, is from the efficient group uh, out here in Pretoria. It's hot as hell up here, but um, the conversation will be even hotter. Molo Sanbonani, welcome back. I'm your favorite fat boy, Big Daddy Liberty. And as I said, I am joined in my makeshift studio. I'm actually in the offices 
of the efficient group. Please do excuse the bit of the echo. I'll do my level best to get rid of it in post-production. But the conversation itself is still just an absolute gem of a conversation to have. If you've been watching my channel, have a look on YouTube and Facebook. I do have a short snippet interview with Darvi Root that I did uh, last year, uh, towards the end of the year, and that's up and um, open to you viewing. And we discussed a few themes there, which I did say would hash out in greater detail. So without me waffling on, let me welcome Mr. Darvi Root to the channel. Darvi, good day to you, my good sir. Thank you, thank you so much. And let me welcome you here at the Efficient Group. And inside the we call this the fishbowl. And it literally is. Darby's <laughs> describing what is essentially a fishbowl. I feel like a catfish, just sort of, you know, trolling the bottom <laughs> of the, the bowl here. Um, Darby, it's been a very interesting, just even the beginning of the year. It feels like we had three years just in January, yeah. and not in itself. Um, those of us who are broke are happy that January is yeah. over. Um, but I want to begin there because there's a story in that, isn't there? The idea that South Africans right now just do not have much in the way of disposable income. I mean, we, I've been listening to other economists like Mike Schussler, who post a lot on yeah. social media, who are actually showing us in real terms, in the hard data terms, that South Africans are getting poorer. And we, see, we seem to have seen that over December, didn't we? Not much in the way of shopping and economic activity. Can I, can I, can I get going by maybe just add to what you've just said yeah. about why you, I mean, you, you made a few starting comments. And there's something that I can add to that. And that is that rich people and wealthy people do not fight one another. Successful people do not fight one another. Mm. If you really want to see uh, people fighting one another, if you want to see countries fighting one another, those are countries that are poor because exactly. poverty leads to poverty. Poor people fight one another. That's right. If, if, if you really want to uplift people, create an environment where you can create wealth and rich people live in peace. Exactly. And peace that's what I want. I want people to live in peace. Unfortunately, that's not the case in South Africa. Yeah, because for the past five years, if you look at simple, straightforward numbers, the economy hardly grew. Mm. But at the same time, the population was growing and we've been getting poorer for the past five years. Mm. And I've done some numbers on what can you expect in terms of economic growth. And we can talk a bit about this thing that we call the economy because that's a very flawed concept. Mm. Economists don't even understand and agree what should be measured with the economy. Right. But at least we know one thing that it, is, it could be wrong but it's at least consistently wrong so we call this thing the economy and the size of the economy is currently increasing at the rate of less than 1% uh, and I expect it to be increasing at less than that for, for 2020 and the years thereafter while the population is growing by 1.6% now if you, if you increase wealth by say 1%, which is not the case, mm -hmm. but you increase the number of people that need to share in this wealth by 1.6% every year, it doesn't, I mean, it's very easy to understand that poverty will go up and with that unemployment will go up as well. So that's what we've had. We've had five horrible, miserable beers and this year is going to be another one and the next year is going to be one as well and that means increase in unemployment and poverty on that. And this leads and you can feel it. Mm. You can feel the social tension. You can feel the political tension building up. And, that's gonna, and that leads to all sort of wacko people with funny ideas about politics and economics. Mm -hmm. But we are in, in a seriously bad place. Davi, the, the, one of the last points you made that is super important is that the state of things also has an impact on the politics of our time. Yeah. And when you talk politics, one has to look at the issue of ideology. Yeah. It seems as though in this country, ideology drives decision-making and not even... Not pragmatism, not what needs to happen, but what is my 
as a politician, my particular worldview, regardless of what the data is telling me, regardless of what the yeah. metrics are, why is this a problem as we head into the politics issue? Yeah, yeah, I will agree with you, but I also want to disagree with you. And yep. Let me tell you why I say so. Yes, ideologically, South Africa is pretty much split in two. You get the lefts and the rights. And uh, I mean, if you want to define it, I mean, we're going to get into a debate and yep. what's what. But let's say, let's, let, let's sort of say that the lefties are the guys that believe in group rights, mm-hmm. and the righties are the guys that believe in individual rights. Right. Or the lefties are the guys that believe that the state should be strong and big, and the righties are the guys that believe that the state should be small and weak. And yeah. s- and, uh, so that's more or less the differences I get. Or private uh, ownership, the right guys, the righties, they believe that the individual should have private property rights, while the lefties believe that property rights should, uh, should uh, be in, in hands of the, of the state. So that's, let's, uh, and I don't want to get into the debate because I'm making a lot of mistakes, but let's call no that right. left and right. Quick, just a quick bookmark. Do you mind just speaking a little closer to okay. right so we so, get rid of the echo? Yeah, so it, 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 uh, but I think we understand what is left and right. And that used to be the case in South Africa. It was pretty clear to understand what's left and what's like, right? We had the, the, the commies and the ANC yes. on the left, and then we had sort of the right on the less, uh, rest on the right, although pretty a lot of the guys on the right were actually on the left. I'm pretty referring much. to the previous national party, pretty for example. Much. They were actually on the left. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. The point I want to make is when the ANC took over as government in South Africa, they were coming from the left, and they turned themselves into what I would call a new liberalist kind of political party, and they did all sort of new liberals kind of stuff. Like, for example, they, they liberalized the, the, the trade and the, the labor markets, and they privatized. They privatized. I mean, that's a swear word today, in the ANC at least. So that was the beginning uh, of the ANC. Pretty soon they changed direction again, and today the ANC is something else. Can you call the ANC today an ideological organization? And I don't think so. I think that they, they have ideological roots. If you listen to them, they talk ideology. They use all sort of ideological excuses to do certain things, yeah. uh, like the nationalization of the Reserve Bank because it must belong to the people or whatever. So they use the, the language of the left, mm. but that's not what it is. The ANC today is not left or right or ideologically driven mostly. The ANC today is one massive big patronage. It's become a huge network that is dependent on the state. They've lost their ideology. They don't even believe in ideology. They believe in one thing, is that you have to belong to this group and that the state is there for the taking and with the state they mean everything. That is the national departments and the local authorities and the state-owned enterprises and the like. And that's what the ANC is today. Mm. And and that is why it's going to be so extremely difficult for the Minister of Finance to cut back on state spending Mm -hmm. because this thing that we call the ANC and the Tripartite Alliance depends its existence mm. depends on state spending mm. because that's what they live off. They live off the money that belongs to you and me, actually. But they live off that. So it's not an ideological thing. It's like a parasite that we have to keep on feeding. I, I, I think any any um, South African taxpayer listening to you just goes, absolutely, Darvi, I, I, I fully agree with you. And because we see this, don't we, in real terms, where there are these individuals who are dead set on holding on to their position, their proximity, if you will, to government. And with government, of course, we talk about yeah. government contracts and all these wonderful trappings. 
let's dig into this now in real terms of how we've seen this practically. Davi, we're in trouble as a nation. There are 200 plus state-owned enterprises in this country. Obviously, we hear of the big ones, yeah. SCOM, SAA, but there's essentially 200 plus. Speaking to exactly what you talk, what you talk about, which is with there being so many SOEs, there, there must very well be very many people who eat off of them, so to speak, eat in inverted commas. But let's talk about the bigger ones, the ones that are sort of putting us into a lot of trouble. SCOM right now, new CEO, on paper, everything looks like it's, it's, cut, it's sort of yeah. on the right track. But when you look at the numbers, 400 billion rand debt, 20 billion rand year-on-year uh, -year debt that it builds on and on and on, is this sustainable? What prevents us from making the right decisions around not only ESCOM, but something like SAA2, et cetera, et cetera? The last couple of months, I saw this whole drama <laughs> taking another turn, for the worse or for the better, depending on how you look at that. Let, let's look at South African Airways, because the, what happened the past couple of years, of a couple of months in South African Airways is really, really interesting. Yeah. Now, South African Airways has been kept alive by you and me, the taxpayer yeah. artificially. We've been transferring tens of billions of rands to South African Airways. They are relatively small, just by the way. Now, they kept on doing that. Now, let me give a couple of names here. The guy that had been transferring, transferring huge amounts of money while he was the Minister of Finance was Praveen Gordon. That's right. The guy that everybody thinks walks on water. Yeah. He was the guy, and while he was the Minister of Finance, state finances were run into the ground. Of course, it's not only his fault. Yes. And I, by the way, I don't think he had his hand in a cookie jar. Okay, I think he's clean, but he's a commie, and he believes in the centralization of power and to keep things alive that shouldn't be alive like South African Airways. Now he's the Minister of State-Owned Enterprises, and he was the guy interfering at ESCOM and the South African Airways and other state-owned enterprises when they tried to fix, when good guys like Hadebe, for example, tried to fix ESCOM, he prevented them to, from doing that. So he interfered there. So it was, again, political interference happening here. But the interesting thing about uh, South African Airways, so they mismanaged the thing, there was bailouts after bailouts after bailouts, and eventually they put it into business rescue. But it wasn't, I know Provin Gordon says, it was him. <laughs> it's not true, it's not him. It wasn't him. It was actually one of the trade, uh, quite ironically, one of the trade unions applied for business rescue and Pravin Gordon lost, uh, he lost all the initiative, of course. He said, okay, well, I'm going to put it into, but it wasn't him. He was pushed into doing this. Now they've got it, business rescue, South African Airways and business rescue. And the idea with business rescue is to fix this thing or to liquidate it, essentially. That is what it means. And what did they do? They transferred and don't call it, it is another bailout. They give it other names. They say it is the development. Development Bank, Nohal, giving the money. What's developmental about that? And the state, you and, my, you and I, we again guaranteeing. It's another bailout to a business that is under business rescue. And then the ANC said, we're going to revive South African Airways. It is, it is, it is important for A, B, and C reasons, and we're just waiting for the radical change of the business rescue, and then it will. Then it's business as usual, and again, billions of rands that we have to use. So the, the interesting thing that is happening here, obviously, they don't learn their lessons. I don't understand why. How can you have 10 turnaround plans at South African Airways? Here's the opportunity to get rid of this thing. We have business rescue, and what did they do? Give it another bailout and promise they're going to revive it. I mean, I, 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 I just cannot get my head around it. Let, let, let's, let's look at it in, in, in context. And you're spot on, by the way. You have a situation where, Davi, if I'm the president of this country 
And I'm in this organization called the ANC, which you rightly described as now being a patronage network. The idea that the closer you are to power and those who are in power, the better your chances if you're a tenderpreneur, whatever the case may be, to eat off of the state. I think your first hand was spot on. I'm not going to relinquish something like SAA. I'm not re- some, something basically that has this ability to have mega contracts, big contracts, catering contracts, sure. um, you know, uh, repair contracts, SAA technical, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The underlying uh, the underlying service itself may be very good. I mean, if you fly SAA, you know, you're not going to have any problems necessarily unless it's late or delayed or cancelled. Um, <laughs> but don't talk about that. <laughs> I had three flights cancelled last week, South African Airways. Never going to fly them again. I promise you. But, but I mean, for, for someone who's sitting in the seat in SAA, they don't. There's no discernible yeah. difference. No, no, no. But the problem is, you are literally running this thing off of fumes. You're running it off of debt. And South Africans don't fully understand, I think, the concept of debt and sovereign debt in particular, the idea of the government running up this debt. They somehow think, no, someone else kind of pays for it, or or the market, in inverted commas, pays for it. And we don't see the link yet that all those decisions that a Praveen makes as a a finance minister of racking up more debt, the consequences of which fall on me, not the politicians, me, the citizen who coughs out, out of my tax. And I can give you a couple of numbers here. That yeah. are, and again, let's talk about this thing that we call the economy. The idea of the economy is that we measure all the things that are produced in the economy. And all goods are like bags of millies of uh, tins of beans and services. And there are many different services. And there are some definitions. So economists got a, a set of rules. And we say everything that falls into this is part of the economy. And we produce stuff in the economy. And quite often what economists also do, we expect many things as a percentage of this thing that we call the economy. Like, for example, um, if, I, if I produce on a farm 100 bags of millies, but I owe 10 bags of millies, then that means 10 bags to 100 is my debt. Okay, that's a simple example. So that's what the economists do. We look at the state and how much money the state owns and how much money the state borrows every year, and we express that as a percentage of GDP. Now, it's easy to understand if the economy doesn't grow and if the economy gets smaller, in fact, then this ratio is moving in the wrong direction because it's a ratio, debt to, to GDP, as an example. Now, let me give you the numbers. When Praveen Gordon took over as the Minister of Finance, state debt levels was around about 25% of GDP. When I talk about state debt, I, po- I talk about the specific debt definition and this is so-called national government it's in the so-called the main budget of the minister of finance so that then there's more than to that like for example the state on enterprises but i'll get to that later so state debt was around about 25 percent of gdp when he took over as minister of finance today's state debt is relative to gdp and the current financial year is going to end at around about 65 percent to gdp and that's in a matter of 10 years this is massive every year the state debt to GDP ratio in the current environment is going up by 5%. So we're going to end to 65% to GDP. Next year is going to be 70% to GDP. The year thereafter, 75% plus. Now we have to pay interest on last year's borrowing as well. And the fiscal deficit just gets, keeps on getting bigger and bigger. And if the economy contracts during that time, it will get even bigger. So we are in a fiscal debt spiral, in a fiscal debt trap. So how do you fix this? You fix it, and then remember, I have not included ESCOM yet. It should be included, and other things, the other parasitals. So how do you fix this? You fix it by doing one or two things. Mm. Well, it will be, of course, it will be nice if the economy can grow by 10%, and of course, it doesn't matter. Yes. You can do all sorts of silly things, and the economy grows, it's fine. But in the current environment, the economy isn't growing. So what can you do? You have to spend less, or you have to get more money in. So spend less, and that's why the politics come in, mm. means inevitably one or two things. And that is you have to spend less 
money on people, salaries, and fewer people employed, and you have to spend less money on bailing out the state-owned enterprises. That's the only place. You can't really cut back on things like, for example, infrastructure, because you hardly spend anything on infrastructure. Or you have to increase your revenue, and that means more taxes. So this is what's going to happen. The ANC, like we said, is one massive patronage. It's dependent on state money being spent. So cutting that is going to be extremely difficult because that's not in the nature of the ANC. They want money to be spent. That leaves you with only one option, and that's more taxes. So let me, and I'll write this on a piece of paper and sign next to it. There will be tax increases. I don't know exactly which ones, but there will be tax increases on the fuel levy, for example, on the various sin taxes and things like that. There could be, and there's most likely going to be, increases in personal income taxes, the biggest tax, by the way, 40% of our total tax stake, and they can do it through various means. They can increase the percentage tax, or they can simply do nothing, and the effect of inflation will push you. The so-called fiscal drag. And there may even be an increase... Uh, in value-added taxes as well, which is politically extremely difficult to do. And there's even Tokusatu, <laughs> those economic uh, Jeez, Ill- illiterate guys, <laughs> but Tokusatu suggested that we have to increase c- uh, company taxes. Now, that is the silliest, the most, sh- that's a stupid idea, because companies don't pay tax. Yes. Companies always shift their completely uh, total tax burden down to the individuals. Yes. And in fact, individuals pay all taxes in end. So the point is, because of the nature of the ANC and what it has become, they are dependent on state money, and as long as they can get money out of your my pocket, they will keep on taking money out of my, my year my pocket. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Dito ideologically, is certainly not there. He's mm-hmm. part of the ANC. He's been saying, close down the South African Airways, uh, doing A, B, and C, and so on. He's been saying these sort of things. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but I think he's a, a lone voice in, in the wilderness here. I don't think it's going to last. But perhaps before we get there, because there, there was a segment where I said, surely there must be some silver linings, and I think Tito, yeah, Tito's kind of one, one, and Saab's one, but we'll, we'll get there just now. Like yeah. Two sort of questions from now. Let, let's go back. You raised a very interesting equation, which I don't think we quite see, which is the idea that, that there must be growth in a society if you're able to, if you will be then able to foot the bill, so to speak, of a bulky government as we have it now. Then the leftist comes in, Davi, and says, well, Davi wrote is wrong. Um, we have our own economists who, who basically say that um, you don't have to worry about debt in a society. You don't have to worry about uh, certain fundamentals. Um, and here's the big kicker. You don't have to worry about growth. So long as the state takes more control of things in society, we, we create more SOEs, we create more uh, government jobs and, and the like, then everything will be fine, Darby, surely. Let me, let me refine your, 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 your argument a little bit further, or this leftish argument. Now, there are many arguments sort of similar in the following um, vein, more or less. But the one argument is that... We need to spend, the state needs to spend more money. And by the way, it starts with, started with a guy that was uh, seen one of the greatest economists of all time. His name is uh, John Maynard. Sir John Maynard. Lord, I think he was. Uh, anyway, he basically said that during times of economic slowdown, the state should spend more money to get the economy going. And once the economy grows, then, of course, the state must do the opposite and reduce its spending, which never happens. Mm-hmm. That is simple terms. So what, what the politicians always only read the one side of the story that, that suits them. So whenever the economy stops growing, they spend more money. When the economy starts growing, they spend even more. <laughs> That's what they do. Um, 
and, and, and of course, if you keep on doing that, then you're going to get into trouble eventually. Yes. And that is unfortunately what, what they misunderstand. If that argument holds, then why can't we just spend ourselves rich? Yes. And you can't do that. Remember, remember, wealth is something that is produced. Something that is produced like, like bags of millis or computers or cars or whatever what we, we produce. And the way that we spend money in South Africa, for example, uh, if the state spends a lot of money and you give the money to the civil servants, what they do, they, they buy flat screen TVs and fancy cars. And many of these things are simply importing. So yeah. that's one simple example why it doesn't work. Because we import stuff. Right. So if we spend a lot of money, if the state spends a lot of money, we're simply going to stimulate the Chinese economy and not the South African economy. Mm -hmm. So that's one. So no, there's a lot of absolutely BS to think that the state can get this economy growing by simply just spending more and more money. Mm -hmm. But e because also every cent that they spend, they take out of your pocket. So it might might be the case that this, that the state take the money, spend it more on a civil servant, and he buys some Kentucky somewhere. But the money has been taken out of your pocket, and you can't buy the Kentucky anymore. So don't think it is a free lunch. There is no free lunch. By the way, there is one free lunch. Maybe we can talk about that. <laughs> um, no, but I think you, you lay out a very strong uh, case in terms of the fallacy of you know the spend your way out of trouble situation because you see this quite a lot, unfortunately, All the time. in our economics. And worse yet, and I won't mention any names because I know your economics community is a small one. Um, you know there are quite a few eco economists who are linked and who work with and who have the the ear of our politicians who are actually pushing this sort of nonsense into that space. And it's actually quite troubling, and I call them out on social media quite a lot, but that's a separate debate for another day. Davi, um, as we sort of move the conversation along, because you've set out quite importantly why the politics is a problem, why the ideology and really the kleptocracy, essentially, yeah, that's word, what it is, yeah. um, is, is driving the sort of insistence on keeping and maintaining a status quo, even though it's self-harming or it's self-harm, essentially. Um, and you, you've, you've raised the specter of why if we don't get the growth story right, um, that nothing, regardless of what your ideological view is, nothing works out for a society in that situation. L let's take the conversation to its logical conclusion. The World Bank issues out some its forecasts for where our growth will be. Our own economist in-house at the IRR, Ian Crookshanks, laughs that off and basically says that's not happening, um, given the trajectory of where we are at the moment. And you've got a smile on your face. I think you, you might be on the same page as Ian, and I'll, let you, I'll, I'll unleash you on this, yeah. this topic. Davi, here's the direct question. What happens to us if we don't get the growth story right? Well, okay, let's see what the potential, potential, what the potential for the South African economy, what we can grow at. And I've done my own numbers, and I can show you how I've done this, but uh, the World Bank did say, yes, just below 1%, the IMF more or less in line with that. Um, many other institutions, the Reserve Bank has been cutting down on their estimates. We're going to see what the Minister of Finance is going to say. I can promise you he's going to cut back on his estimates as well. And here's my number. I believe that South Africa in the current environment has got a growth ceiling. Now, note, I'm not saying this is what we're going to grow at. The growth ceiling currently in South Africa is less than 1%. That means even if we do everything right, the economy will not grow by 1%. And the reason is simple, because we don't have electricity. I'm not even talking about the other stuff. I'm not talking about the dysfunction of the state -owned, other state-owned enterprises and the, the excessive tax burden and the incompetence of the civil service and stuff. I'm just looking at electricity. If you don't, it doesn't matter if we invest and build factories and mines and things like that. If you don't have electricity, your economy will not grow. 
So that's a starting point. 1% maximum growth if we do everything right. Believe me, we're not going to do everything right. We're going to do a lot of ba bad things. SAA is one example. So if you keep on doing stuff badly or wrong decisions, then this 1% will be will go down and down and down, and we're probably going to see half a percent growth this year again, or even less, in an environment, again, where the population is growing up to 1.5%, 1.6% or so. So where is this going to end? This is how it all, the, the, these sort of things always end the same. What happens is politicians start, the state starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger, the tax burden increase, increase, increase. Then what happens is that if you run out of tax base, what you do next, you start making, you, you start consuming your capital or you don't look after your capital. That is the same as consuming capital. It's come another one. It's been destroyed. Yeah. And then you run out of capital eventually, then you have to find money somewhere else. And the obvious place is to find money in that pot of gold that is left, and that's the savers. Mm. Have you heard of prescribed assets? Mm. That's it. And then the fourth one, this party always ends the same. Once you run out of savers, you go after the one thing that still remains, and that's your central bank. And that means inflation. Uh, this is where I want us to go. Uh, you've preempted my question. As I said before, we get to the silver yeah. lining. Y you clearly see this now. The, the South African politician, who I now call the predatory politician, has become a predator and firmly in his sights, like a cheetah chasing an impala in the field, you know, sort of zigging when, when we zig, zagging when we zag, is the South African saver, the pensioner, in, 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 inevitably, with you mentioning the prescribed assets policy. Um, and of course, other forms of saving, you know, household savings by way of someone who maybe literally bought a house and, you know, is contributing towards it. That is a form of saving of to, course to an is. extent. Yes. Um, that's also under threat with policies such as expropriation, expropriation exactly. Yes. The, the moral of the story, very simply, is the, the, the predatory politician is now firmly sets his eyes on the saver. Davi, here's the, quick, the conundrum, and I want you to talk to this. When the saver himself is leaving the country... That's the next point. And by the way, there's two le levels of leaving the country. There's that, the, the richer saver who takes his money and financially immigrates. Yeah, he might be here. You might still see him in the mansion. But financially, he's not here. No. He's in wherever. And of course, there's the more average Joe, like, you know, Mbali and I. Mbali is my sound person over here. Um, you know, we, we don't have that kind of money, but we're starting to do things like planning, for example, because we're young, for us to physically leave the country, yeah. often taking skills, taking um, the ability to pay these taxes that the politicians need with us to other countries. Talk to me about that, that problem that we're facing. The problem, the problem you're referring to is people running away, for voting with their feet, you know? And we in South Africa, we've got, we've got something called foreign exchange regulations. You can't just take money out of South Africa. You have to jump through a lot of hoops before you are allowed to take money out. And that's what I do here in this business. Uh, you're allowed to take a million rand out. People, it's quite fairly easy to do that. If you want to take anything more than that out, you have to get special permission from bureaucrats. Now, imagine this. I work hard. I pay my taxes, and I'm totally overtaxed. I do all these things that are required for me. And now I want to take my money that I have worked for, and I want to take it out of the country for whatever reason, and now I have to go and stand in a queue and ask a bureaucrat to take my own money out of the country. And this is something that I'm concerned about as well. So we have foreign exchange regulations. People are taking the money out all the time. And that, by the way, is part of the reason why the South African currency, the rand, is so very, very, very weak because nobody wants it. We don't want to put our money in South Africa. We want to take it out because we can see the mess that is caused by the politicians. And I've got a suspicion that 
opportunity will be closing down as well. But I'm saying I think foreign exchange regulations may be something that the politicians will eventually start considering as well because if the money is out, of course, they can't lay their hands on it. That's right. And, and it's funny, um, for legal reasons, I won't say uh, what I want to say in real terms. I, I think what I'm trying to say in a legal way, but although it's illegal, is that actually South Africans are finding ways now um, to move their money out, including not so rich South Africans, by the way. Um, but again, this conversation, after I've <laughs> consulted with my lawyers, I'll have in another podcast with someone who uh, can talk to us about this particular issue. Um, but Davi, I digress. Um, the concern, therefore, with the picture you've painted is poor growth and a growth ceiling, which is a scary thing yeah. to think about. Um, no electricity, a declining standard of living, for most South Africans, a country which is seemingly losing the battle on crime, therefore things are getting miserable for most people who are, hashtag I'm staying, um, and essentially a body politic which ever increasingly seeks to leech off of these individuals, uh -huh. these unhappy, barely making it individuals, and don't see on their side uh, what they like to ask us to do, which is to tighten our belts. Exactly. We're not really seeing them doing this. I'm gonna move to that one last area that you mentioned. Once the politician says, I'm coming after your savings, uh, once the savings are depleted, he then says, hey, no one's here who's willing to give me the money. How about I print the money myself? How is this a problem and what am I referring to in particular? We're seeing it already. We're seeing it already. We have an institution called the South African Reserve Bank. It is, it's, a, it's a statutory monopoly, by the way, and they can literally make money. And they can make money out of nothing. And that, uh, that whoever's in charge of that machine, that printing machine that can create money out of nothing, is, is of, of course, a very, very powerful individual. And that's the reason why we have on our constitution uh, the, the independence of the central bank is guaranteed. And that's the reason, by the way, uh, why there were some suggestions made by economic, brilliant economists like Aiz Magashule, for example, that they want to nationalize the Reserve Bank, which is not necessarily a main issue, but they want to change the mandate of the Reserve Bank. That means this is code language for let's start printing money. Anyway, one of the best things that the president has done, a brilliant thing, is to reappoint Lesetje Konyago as the governor of the Reserve Bank. He's one of the best governors that we've ever had, if not the best. He's, got, he's supposed to have two jobs. Now he's got three jobs. Let me start with a job that he's not supposed to have. He's not supposed to pr protect the independence of the Reserve Bank from, from the attacks from the politicians. And he's taking a lot of time. He's defending the Reserve Bank and we have to support him in that. That shouldn't be his job. But that is, in fact, what is happening. Politicians are interfering and meddling and trying to prescribe to the Reserve Bank what to do. The second thing that he's supposed to do is get inflation down mechanically. And he's done that. We are, I would like to see it even lower. But he's done that. Excellent. Doing an excellent job. That meant that he had to keep interest rates relatively high for some time. And he's done that now. And the third thing is he needs to get inflation expectations down. And he's done that as well because now we trust him. We believe him. We, when he says, listen, you guys, we're going to get inflation down to 4.5%, not the 6% like we used to because we had the 3 to 6% ban. We still have that. But he says, now I want to target 45 we should be targeting too, if you ask me. And now we believe him because he's proved himself. And that's what money is. Money is nothing but trust. Yes. And the Kunyahu market trust him. Absolutely. I mean, and this is where I'm saying the conversation is heading, isn't it? Um, there are two broad 
actors in, in, in the finance world, in the economics world, who are building that trust um, with the public to varying degrees, but Lesejo being the highest of the two. Without um, a doubt. Absolutely. And you're right. Look, I'm not in favor of fiat currencies generally, but that's another subject. That's another deb- debate. Um, but in the, so far as we have a fiat currency, yeah. we have a central bank, absolutely. You've got to have a character like Lesejo who's brave enough at times to even stand against political principles and say, actually, no, I'm not here to listen to you. I'm not here to heed your populist message. My job is to protect the integrity of, of the South African slave and the South African individual. But imagine the kind of pressure that he is under. Remember, just about everybody, not even, I'm not even talking about lefties only. Yeah. I'm not even talking about the trade unions and these funny communists and all that. I'm talking about mainstream economists saying that the Reserve Bank is doing, remember we have to pay a price in order to, to, to earn your, the trust. That's, and that's a price we paid. Mm-hmm. And the, the price was relatively high interest rates. Mm-hmm. We didn't, because imagine that what South Africa would have looked like if we had just about zero economic growth plus inflation of 20%. This would have been a complete, total disaster. But fortunately, there's one guy, and I'm afraid that he's going to be there for another five years, thankfully so. So he will, and I'm pretty sure he's going to do this, he will keep on defending the, the independence of the Reserve Bank. But I'm just very, very worried to know who's going to take over from him. If there's some weird things happening on the political sphere, mm. and remember, it's, a, it's the state president appointing the governor at the South African Reserve Bank, mm. and I can think of a couple of state presidents that I wouldn't want to be there. Well, sort of literally waiting in the wings, aren't they? Um, let's move the conversation on a little bit as we sort of tie things up a bit. That second silver lining, maybe not as big as Lesejo, but... He's there, um, tweets a lot, tweets a lot about his cooking <laughs> from his private farm, <clears throat> which hopefully he'll not be ex- have ex- expropriated without his being compensated. Um, that was a little dig, yes, I know. <laughs> um, the finance minister, you mentioned this earlier, he has been making, to his credit, he has been making the right noises around the need to abandon ideological uh, thinking and actually say, guys, what works? What do we need to do? And we need to do it urgently. Yeah. Um, here's the problem. In a couple of weeks, in a few weeks rather, he's going to be addressing the nation around the budget. And you made mention already that those numbers are not going to look good. Horrible. Talk to me about what you think from this individual who has a little bit of our trust. What is he going to stand up in there and, and tell us, Darby? Well, let's see what's been happening in the last couple of months and years. Uh, I think I had a look at the, the, the political climate or who's in charge of the ANC, I guess it's a better question. And I, th- I see four centers of power. Of course, there are more, but four major centers of power. The one is the president and Pravin Goran. The other one is the deputy president, and he seems to be sort of wherever the most money is. <laughs> he seems to be a bit like a hired gun. <laughs> See what happened <laughs> when he was elected. The third one is Eismakashule, and it seems to be the ex-Zumaites is around there, more or less. And the fourth one is Tito Mbaweni. Now, I, I've had a, the, the, the privilege of, of having a couple of... Uh, Short ones with with with, with the two a few times. I think he's an amazing guy. He's a bit of a ma- maverick. He's got a he's got a serious. Well, he hasn't got an image problem. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, so no, but I really do like him. I really do like him because he used to be the, the governor of the South African Reserve Bank. Once he's put his head on something, I think he really will really do whatever he can to achieve that. He understands the financial markets, and I think he's the best that the ANC can offer. And I'm afraid he's going to say one day, listen, you guys, I've been trying. I've been saying, no, you cannot do this. It's not a matter of ideology. It's a matter of simply sums. It's the numbers. They do not add up. And I've got a suspicion either he's going to jump or he's going to get pushed. I can't see how he's going to stick around for that much longer. And even the president himself 
have been knocking him over the knuckles and saying, listen, we don't agree with that. So I'm afraid. D2 is another silver lining, but I think he's going to start looking off these levels. I want to quickly interject here. <clears throat> these individuals have just been at uh, uh, Davos, and um, mm-hmm. they got a, a, a bloody nose, so to speak, to an extent, insofar as if I'm to judge off of one uh, uh, um, economic anchor, yeah. a journalist, clearly... Great. Clearly, yeah. Davi, the international community is just not buying the nonsense from South Africa anymore. And you need, unfortunately, if that's the case, if there is a trust deficit with the international community, you need uh, to put your best foot forward. Um, not the finance minister, because I've seen his shoes, so he can keep <laughs> his foot feet backwards. But, but, but the finance minister, in terms of his character, yeah. who he is, and, and that individual... Do you think, I'm asking a political question now, do you think the ANC would really risk getting rid of someone like that who they need essentially to push forward into the international community? I said earlier in this discussion that the ANC has turned into this parasitic institution. They need money to, that's what they need. And I, I'm afraid they will, they will get rid of anybody that stands in the way of the ANC. So I am afraid it's probably, yes, they will get rid, if necessary, they will get rid of anybody as long as they can maintain this whole thing, this whole patronage. And, uh, and uh, let me just add to this. I get the op- opportunity to speak to international uh, to diplomats quite a lot. I've had the opportunity to dine with, with prime ministers even in South Africa and, and, uh, the, and, 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 and uh, uh, diplomats and ambassadors quite a lot. Uh, and journalists, of course, and international investors, and I go abroad once every now and again as well, and I speak a lot to the local uh, investors in South Africa, and I've got a bit of a dilemma. Let me just uh, uh, share this with you. It's a bit of a personal problem, because when I stand in front of a lot of potential investors, and they ask me about South Africa, my question to myself is, what should I be? Should I be a South African, or should I be an analyst? Should I be a loyal South Africa, telling them, should I lie to them, or should I be an honest analyst? And that's a dilemma because I want this country to work. And I can tell you, they ask me questions. They try to. They ask me to explain to them things like, for example, what's happening to South African Airways. And I try to tell them this, and they say, "What? What? Is that how you do stuff in South Africa? What?" Or they ask questions. So who's in jail? Who's in jail? So now I'm afraid that the, the image of South Africa internationally is not what it is. But if they want to really want to sell South Africa, Tito is the right guy. But I'm afraid he's going to say we're going to cut back on state spending and wastage and corruption and blah, blah, blah. Next year he's going to be there again and we haven't done anything. They're going to stop listening to him as well. Davi, as we really look to wrap up this conversation in the sort of last five minutes we have, um, I want you to talk to me, just to bring the question back a little bit, to this budget that's coming up, because I think anybody who's listening to us now is yeah. chomping at the bits. Please, 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 what do you expect out of this budget? You sort of began earlier on, and I'm going to frame it this way. Yeah. Tax will be the big story of yes. this budget. Spending, do you think, uh, and maybe there's a secondary question, do you think we're going to see a message of cutting back on spending, a meaningful one? And the last question is, um, what happens with the civil service? Will it shrink? Will it be... Um... um Sorry, little technical glitch. Give me a second, people, as I quickly fix this. Okay, we're back. We're back. Um, there's three broad areas I wanted to speak to as we close this conversation. Okay. Um, tax, good tax versus bad tax. What's about to happen? Two, spending. Will we see the state say, no, we're going to roll back yeah. spending in order to, to service debt and blah, blah, blah. And three, what happens with the civil service? Okay, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about taxes because that is, that is the, the stuff that I really like to talk about and I keep an eye on what's going on in the various taxes and th- that tells you a lot about the, what's going on in the economy. There are three major taxes. 
The most important tax is personal income taxes. And, per, and remember, civil servants also pay personal income taxes. And every year, there are nearly 30,000 civil servants that are paid a million rand. 30,000 civil servants. <laughs> uh, but they also pay personal income tax. So personal income tax is the most important tax to the Minister of Finance, about 40% of total tax take. And the personal income taxes is very, very skewed. It's a, a, a relatively few, few individuals that pay by far most the personal income taxes. It's a very, very skewed personal income tax profile that we have in South Africa. The second most important tax is value-added tax. Mm -hmm. It's an indirect tax, and that's a tax on spending, and that has been under some pressure recently as well. That used to do uh, quite well, the collection of personal value-added taxes, because if you spend a lot of money on the civil servants, they buy Kentucky and flat screen TVs, and we pay VAT on all of that. Mm -hmm. So the more you spend on the civil service, the more personal income taxes they pay, and the more VAT they pay as well. The third most important tax is company taxes, around about 16% of total tax and that tax uh, has been under pressure for quite a number of years. And that is the tax that gives us the better indication of underlying economic activity. So for some, and we could, have, we could see this in personal income, and then a couple of other smaller taxes like the fuel levy and the sin taxes. And the stuff. So the revenue, the total revenue in my estimates in the current financial year could be between 60 and as much as 80 or even more billion rand less than the original budgeted estimates. That's a billion with a B. On the spending side, spending is going to be more. Fortunately, we have something called the contingency reserve. We're going to use that on other things. But spending is probably going to be more uh, because of things like, for example, the bailouts on state-owned enterprises and the like. But here's the, here's the trick that politicians quite often use. So they guarantee a spending on South African airways, but it's not part of expense. So it's not part of the spending numbers necessarily, but it increases the potential debt because it's only a guarantee. So watch out for that sort of numbers. But anyway, so the difference between the two, the fiscal deficit, how much we spent and how much we get in, is probably going to be around about 7% of GDP, and we spoke about that, and that will add to the already tax burden, and eventually it's going to lead, uh, or to the, uh, the debt burden, and eventually it's going to lead to a downgrade. So that's where we are. Uh, and I'm afraid the downgrade is pretty much a given. I can't see how we're going to get out of this one. That will lead to a weaker currency initially. I'm actually quite bullish on the currency, by the way. Okay. Uh, the, uh, one of the reasons is because South African financial markets is very liquid, very attractive, and the currency is already very weak. But over time, the rand will keep on losing value, but it's short term, it could turn it around a little bit as speculators come in. But I do believe a, a downgrade is pretty much a given. And until we start really pulling up our socks, and until, we and until the president, I think it must start with the president, and unless it starts taking leadership, because he's not, Unless that happens, I'm afraid we're going to keep on on the current downward spiral. Absolutely. Well, okay, as we are in our final minutes, um, Darby, it's, you've painted, unfortunately, a picture, a very dark picture, but I like leaving, I like leaving our, our listeners with asking my guest the top five reforms that you would suggest if we are really going to turn the ship, turn the tide. Top five reforms, Darby, what do we do? All right, let me just, before I get to the top five, let me just make one or two comments. I, I did say that South Africa's, uh, the uh, yields in South Africa, look at the capital market, for example, is very attractive, and the currency is very weak. That is a plus for us, because I suspect that foreigners will see that there are very nice opportunities, especially in the financial markets, so don't necessarily think the rent's going to fall completely out of the bus. And what I'm also trying to say, if you've got nice yields in the capital market, there are other nice yields in the rest of the economy as well. So if you're a business person, you must, be, uh, you must, you must do, do two things. Identify your risks and manage your risks, and the money will come. So that's 
So don't lose hope. Okay, a couple of things that you need to do in South Africa. Well, first of all, I think what needs to happen is that the ANC government must say and stand up and say, listen, we made a, a big mess of this thing. We must admit it's our fault because it is their fault. Stand up and say that and also tell us that we're going to lead from now on. I am the president. I have got a vision for South Africa. I'm going to lead this country and tell us it is going to be tough and it's going to be very, very difficult. Point number two, you have to cut back on state spending. You must spend less money because there is not more money. We, the taxpayer cannot keep on carrying this burden. Point number three, and this is perhaps the most important one, we will do whatever is necessary to protect the individual private property rights. We will not steal private property rights. We will, and point number four, we will make sure from now on is that the, 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 anybody that steals money will end up in jail, the politicians primarily. And the most important thing, if you're a politician, you are a civil servant. And from now on, we will have an effective and efficient civil service with the emphasis on the service part. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, that is Mr. Darby Rudd from the Efficient Group, of course, who has literally just broken it down for us as to just how, um, on the one hand, <laughs> how much of a mess we're in, of course, but um, as I always do at the end of the show, like what we can actually do to get ourselves back. And when you listen to something like that, I need you to situate yourself in that. Um, don't think you're a passive recipient of these reforms. You need to be the loudest voice in the room in fighting for those ideas, fighting for, um, you know, to lobby your local politician to move in that direction. So um, a quick hearty thank you very much to Darby Root. Darby, thank you very much for joining me. An absolute pleasure and an absolute an honor. Thanks, homie. I appreciate that. And um, thank you, dear listener, for listening to this episode of Liberty and Friends. Remember, you can always support your favorite fat boy by becoming a friend of the IRR. That is our crowdfunding campaign. That is literally where I get my salary from. So don't think I'm rolling in the uh, Jacob Zuma Doe type situation here. No, I'm not a tenderpreneur. I don't make that kind of money. Um, I'm wholly dependent on you. You can uh, become a friend by essentially donating 90 rand a month to the campaign. How how do you do that, you're wondering? Well, SMS your name to 32823, and SMS will cost you one rand. Terms and conditions do apply. And of course, if you're in new school, you're hip, you're young, uh, well, then find us online, rather, at irr.org.za forward slash join, and you can sign up to donate 90 rand a month over there. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the show. Remember, as I always say, never trust a commie 